So let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading out of Acts chapter 17, 1 through 9. Starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, for the Christ to suffer and to be raised from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them went and persuaded, uh, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people, of the city, people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. Deep breath. Tonight we are moving from Philippi, where we've been the last several weeks. And we are looking at Thessalonica. Paul, the end of chapter 16, where we just were, Paul was kicked out of Philippi, essentially. He's sent on his way, he's traveling, and he stops in two cities. And then he lands in the city of Thessalonica. As we look at Acts 17, I want to look at a couple key themes key things uh, that we see from Paul's ministry there and, and sort of applications that we can draw from the two letters that he wrote to this church. So he, we have a very short little narrative, nine verses that Luke tells, and then we have two letters that Paul writes to this church. They traveled, it's about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. It's probably at least a three-day journey as they traveled from one city to the next. They followed the interstate of the ancient world, and the missionaries passed through these two cities, passed through even prominent cities. These are, these are not just small towns. Passed through prominent cities because Paul was eager to get to Thessalonica. He was eager to get there. This was a major port city. This was a major city in Macedonia. It was the capital of the province of Macedonia. It was the second largest city in Greece. It is still, to this day, a very large city. It's a port city up at the top of the sea there. 
In its day, when Paul went there, the estimated population was up to 200,000. This is a large city for the day. Still a thriving city up in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea, sort of in a little port. So Paul and his team arrive there. They arrive in Thessalonica, and they do what they do. I mean, if, if you're reading along, you're following along with us, these stories all start to, like, blend together. What did Paul do when he came to a new city? He went to the synagogue, or he looked for the synagogue, or he looked for a Jewish community or a praying community. He did the same things. And so he does that. He goes and he, he does the same stuff he seems to do in all of these cities. And this is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts because it has this one line in it that I think sort of sums up the whole book for me. It's, it's in verse 6. It's this accusation that's brought before the disciples of Jesus. And it says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's the accusation that's levied against Paul and these early disciples, this forming church in Thessalonica. I think that's what we are here for. That statement should define what happens as the outflow of the church. What would it be like if the community knew community around us in Santa Rosa, Sonoma County was like, those people from refuge, they're turning the world upside down. It's a small, family-like community, but they're doing something that is mind-blowing and is changing the way culture functions. That's what's happening here. I think this is what's expected of the Christ-following life, is we follow Jesus in the way of discipleship, as we've seek to serve his kingdom. This is what it looks like. We, we aim to give ourselves over to impacting the world around us and see the world changed. Like these missionaries that we're looking at, we, we give ourselves to seeing God do his work amongst us. That's the idea that's at work here in Acts 17. Honestly, that's, that's the idea that's at work through this whole book, the book of Acts. Paul and his ministry team, they had already turned the world upside down. The stories of what had happened in preceding cities are spreading, of how God had shown up in the earthquake and the jail, how God had saved and spared Paul through all of the various mobs that he had to deal with. One scholar titled his commentary of the book of, the book of Acts, Acts, a world upside down. I think that's the right title as we look at this book. It's, it's, he, that same scholar says this, Acts narrates the formation of a new culture. It's the narrative story of the formation of a world being turned upside down or right side up, depending on how we're looking at the story. That's the mission of the church. That's what we exist to do, that we are forming a new culture. We are living out the implications of the gospel in the formation of a new culture out amongst a dying culture. 
We, we live a different way. We live and function differently. When we get terrible news, we respond differently. The world should look out from, from the outside at how we respond and see something unique and different. That's the mission of the church. Like our missionary group that we've been following now through all of these stories as Paul's been traveling on his second missionary journey, we should live and act distinct amongst the population. And in the first half of Acts 17, really what we're looking at tonight, uh, this story that we're looking at tonight, they're proclaiming Christ. And the accusation is that they're proclaiming Christ as king in particular, not Caesar. That's the accusation that's levied against them. The preaching and the teaching of a Christ-centered scriptural approach that Jesus is Lord and that he changes everything. That's the story that's going on here. Real quick, is this mic in the monitors? It's bugging me. (laughs) Thank you. Jesus is Lord. And if he is, if that's the reality, if the truth is that Jesus is king, if he's Lord, if he's master, if he rules the heavens and the earth, that changes everything. That's the gospel story. That's the story that we carry is that Jesus is king. And if that's true, and it is, everything is different. The gospel changes everything about your life. And it has the power and the authority to change everything about your neighbor's life and your community's life. And that's the good news that we bring. Jesus is Lord. And that changes everything. Acts 17, we find that the word of the Lord is spreading throughout cities. The word of of what God has done and the the growing church is spreading. In particular, we're going to look at two cities in this chapter, Thessalonica tonight and next week, Berea. King Jesus is proclaimed. He's exalted. He's embraced in these cities. The good news of Jesus is shared. John Stott, in his commentary on these passages, he says, Luke chronicles the Thessalonican and Berean mission with surprising brevity. It's really short. Yet one important aspect of them to which he seems to be drawing his readers' attention is the attitude of Scripture that's adopted by both of them. One of the things that we learn from both of these stories is the way in which they responded to the scriptures. When we proclaim Jesus, whether it's you telling your story of how God showed up in your life and met your needs and responded to you and saved you, or when we open the scriptures and we tell each other the good news, when we proclaim the word on Sundays at four, when we do this, when we proclaim the crucified and risen Messiah, and we open the scriptures, God is faithful to his word. And he will accomplish what it says. The question really falls on how do we respond to the word? 
How do we react when we hear the proclaimed word of God? We often talk about the Berean Christians, and we're, we're going to look at that next week. Nikolai's going to look at that. How they received the word of God, examined it carefully. But Paul would write to the Thessalonians in his letters to them. He's going to write two letters to them. And he commends them for the way they received the scriptures. He says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, We also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The Thessalonican church received the word of God as it really is, not as words from man, but as the word of God that is alive and active and at work inside of us. And that's how we receive the word of God. So due to more and more opposition, the mission in Thessalonica ultimately gets cut short. Abbreviating that story a little bit there. It gets cut short, and Paul has to move on. Eventually, he'll end up in Corinth, where he he will write 1 Thessalonians. Some of his team is going to travel further on, and and things are going to move. But despite the short narrative that we have of of Paul's time here in this city, despite the short little nine verses that we have, I think we get a lot of helpful application from these verses of what it looks like to not just proclaim the word of God faithfully, but to receive it. We're going to look at a few of these. Let's look at a few things from Paul's time in Thessalonica. First thing. And this, we've seen this over and over with Paul. What does Paul do when he enters a new missional opportunity? He establishes a point of contact. First thing Paul does, this is regardless of where he, he is, Paul first looks for a point of contact. He looks in, usually at the Jewish synagogues. Remember, in Philippi, he had to go down. There wasn't a synagogue. There wasn't even enough Jewish men to have a synagogue, so they went down to the river where there were women praying. This is a theological move for sure. Paul's looking for some level of theological agreement that he can use to point them towards the gospel, but it's also practical, very practical. Paul engages that congregation on three separate Sabbaths. He reasons with them and he engages with them on three separate Sabbaths. He encounters the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who made up this synagogue and he reasons with them. They're familiar with the religious things. They're familiar with the Old Testament. They have an inroad already established that he can speak into. Paul's habit of finding a quick way to connect with those that become sort of a missional thing that we can learn from. 
that we can glean from as we begin to think and act and live as a missionary community. What would it be like if we practiced this, if we thought this way? What if we started by thinking of where you already are? What are the circles that you are already in where people are far from Jesus, but they're receptive to you even? What are those areas where you already have a way to engage intentionally with the gospel? Maybe if we're honest, a lot of us, just the stage of life we're in, that's going to revolve around things with your kids. Maybe it's the school that you're connected to or, or uh, sports events or those sort of things. Think missionally. Think intentionally. Take the normal, regular things of your life. This is what Paul's doing. He's taking the normal rhythms of a Jewish man. He, every Sabbath, went to the synagogue. This is what he did. And he took that normal rhythm of his life, and he turned it into a missional opportunity. Maybe it's coaching sports. Soccer. I know a lot of you are deep in the throes of soccer right now. That provides a great opportunity for you to get to know not just the, the kids and their players, but their parents and other coaches. For us, it's not soccer, but cycling. Gives an opportunity if we're intentional, and that's intentionality is the key. Paul didn't just go into a community, into a synagogue, and sit back and listen quietly. He engaged it intentionally. Maybe it's volunteering somewhere in the city, serving the marginalized and the poor, serving a pregnancy center, demonstrating God's love for people in a very practical way, showing that God cares for the whole person. Maybe it's hosting events in your house or your story and table group, living in a way that invites your neighbors and those that are connected in a real tangible missional way. Maybe it's simply taking walks in your neighborhood or consistent hikes where you run into the same people and you begin to develop relationships. Consistently going to the same cafe or the same, uh, I don't know, gas station and engaging the same people regularly. That begins to open the door for you to have gospel conversations. It creates an avenue for you to live in a way that provokes questions about the gospel. The idea is to work, play, enjoy life centered and rallied around the good news of Jesus. That the implications of the good news of a risen Messiah affects even the cafe you choose. It affects all those decisions that you make so that you can reach people with the good news of Jesus. Second thing that Paul did is he expounded the scriptures for people. We are a people, this church, we love the scriptures. 
you all are engaged in different Bible studies, different, different ways to learn and grow, and students of the Scripture, and we teach through the Bible. We like to spend a lot. We're going to spend a year and a half on one book of the Bible here. Paul's approach always involved consistently opening the Scriptures. He did this in a few key ways. I just want to, we're going to go through these real quick here. He was always Christocentric. That's a big word. He was always focused on Jesus. You could not get him to stop talking about Jesus. Jesus had so wrecked Paul that as he read the Old Testament, all he could do is see Jesus. All he could do is see and proclaim Jesus as he looked at the Old Testament. As Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, just in this story, Paul sets before the Thessalonican church, he sets before this synagogue the reality of Jesus. He, it says that he proclaims that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and be raised from the dead. Jesus' disciples on the road to Emmaus, you'll remember the story. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus' disciples couldn't even see the truth until he opened their eyes. Enlightened their eyes to the truth of the scripture. In this situation, Paul is opening the eyes of these of this synagogue. He's opening this, the fundamental truth of the scripture. And he's presenting the reality that the Christ must suffer and be raised from the dead. I don't know what passage Paul opened up. There's a number of them that, I mean, anywhere they could have opened up. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the great story of the suffering servant. The song of the suffering servant. What we do know is that Paul didn't merely teach the facts of the Old Testament. He didn't just tell the stories of the Old Testament for the, for the reason of history. He shared the, the true storyline of the Scripture, the, the climax and the narrative of the story all building towards this cross and this resurrected king. This suffering servant who would lay his life down as a cursed one on a cross. The reality is that for you and I, in the culture we live in, a lot of people know the stories in the Bible. A lot of people are familiar with some of the Bible facts and the Bible stories. The, the question is, do they know the storyline? Do they know where this whole thing is going? Do the people in your life know the, the overarching narrative of where this whole thing is going and how it's building? We have the opportunity to tell people the greatest story that's ever been told. From creation to rebellion to promise and expectation to redemption in the cross 
to the church and the working out of that redemption and then ultimately to the restoration of all things. This grand narrative, this storyline with its climax and its pinnacle in the person and work and life of Jesus. We get the opportunity to to present the flow of redemptive history and how Jesus, the Messiah, has redeemed the whole world by the power of the cross. Paul was Christocentric, and he was bold. When Paul showed this suffering to glory agenda of the scripture, he affirmed that this Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the one that you've been waiting for and asking for, that your parents and your parents' parents and generations after generation have been longing for. That snake crusher that was promised at the very beginning Jesus is him. Jesus, the the one that I proclaim to you, that's him. He's the Messiah. There's no mincing words. There's no questioning. Well, what did Paul really mean? Very clear. Paul made Jesus the hero of the entire story of Scripture. The hero of every message, of every Bible story that the kids in the Jewish community grew up hearing. Jesus is the hero. It all points to him. He taught clearly about Jesus' nature, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon return. The reality is, in Paul's day, that took incredible courage. That took boldness. How many times at this point in the story of Acts have we seen Paul be beaten, arrested? How many times has there been a mob that's been rallied to beat Paul? And it seems more and more As he's continuing through these cities and this journey, the message is getting clearer. One line here, Jesus that I proclaim is the Messiah. It's very clear. He was willing to endure countless afflictions, countless beatings, for the sake of proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. When Paul reflects on his time in Thessalonica, he said this, 1 Thessalonians 2, this is the benefit of having these letters written. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 and 2, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you is not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as we were treated wrongly in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition, in spite of all the things that were levied against him. He was emboldened to preach the good news. Guys, our our current cultural situation is one of so-called tolerance 
and yet increasing hostility towards Christianity. We need to ask that the Lord would give us this kind of boldness. A Paul kind of boldness that would boldly proclaim the truth regardless of what may come. That we would speak the gospel with truth and clarity. And I love that Paul wasn't just bold for brashness sake. He was also intelligent in his approach. He was clear and intelligent. You can see this in, in the way the verbs that are used in, in verse 2 through 4. Reason. Explain. Prove. Proclaim. Persuade. Paul's reasoning from the scriptures to make his arguments. He's not using the Bible in some like superficial, mystic way or as like a proof text, but he is reasoning with them. He's speaking rationally and logically. The Greek word here for reasoned, it's the root of our English word to dialogue. It implies a conversation that Paul engaged in a reasoned conversation over the scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. That the Bible was open and a conversation was had over several weeks. Several weeks. The word explaining here it literally means opening. That Paul opened the scriptures with clarity and simplicity. That he opened them up and brought clarity. Unfortunately, often those of us who are Bible-believing followers of Jesus, that we sometimes get taken as if we're anti-intellectual. If we don't know how to reason, and we just believe in something that's mystic and weird. Has anybody else had that sort of approach given to you? But the reality here, and this is one of the things I love about the way Paul ministered. He opened the scripture and reasoned. This is not just some like, oh, I believe and that settles it. There was logical debate and reasoning that happened here. And that's okay. That's good to practice, you guys. We should clearly always bathe our work in scripture and ask that the Holy Spirit speak. Because ultimately, he's the only one that can do it, right? He's the only one that can actually change a heart. But he uses your study of Scripture. He uses your intellect and your reason and your mind to bring the truth of the Scripture to people's hearts. That's why we study the Scripture. That's why we give ourselves it. That's why week after week we open the Bible and walk through it in a systematic way. Paul helped people think about the Bible. He helped them consider what it meant and what it implied. And he always pointed them. Remember, he, you could not get him to stop talking about Jesus. It always points back to Jesus. Paul emphasized in all of this who Jesus is. 
that he, the Jesus that he preached is the Christ. And he emphasized what he did for them, that he had suffer and rise from the dead. That's our message. Who is God? Who is God? Our God is the creator God who emptied himself and took the form of a man in the Christ, in the man Christ Jesus. That's who God is. And what did he do? He willingly went and laid his life down and paid the price that you couldn't pay. He willingly suffered on your behalf. He willingly chose to go to the cross. Paul would say, I preached Christ and him crucified. That's what we preach. That's what you present. That's what we are chosen to be messengers of. Jesus and him crucified. Who is God and what did he do? In Jesus, you see the fullness of the deity in bodily form. We preach Jesus. And what did he do? He was crucified and raised from the dead. That's the good news. Jesus, the Messiah, crucified. Lastly here, Paul opened the scriptures with a level of integrity. He opened the scriptures with a, a level of personal integrity. In 1 Thessalonians, as he's, he's opening up this, this letter, as he's writing to this church that's planted, he commends, he's commenting on God's God-glorifying motivations. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 9. And then he reminds the believers of his godly lifestyle, including his hard work in both his manual labor and his ministry of the word. You guys ever read 1 Thessalonians? There's this whole thing in there that he's reminding them that I worked hard. I labored. I worked with my hands. This is, he actually like, he generated his own income here bivocational. At the same time, he's receiving support from Philippi, which we learn from, Thessal or from Philippians. <laughs> They're sending him support as he's doing his work. He's working with his hands. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like, the, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you, into his own kingdom and glory. Paul lived a life of integrity which allowed him to call them to work, to live a life worthy of the gospel. He didn't do this to brag or to defend his ministry. He is assuring the church that he and his co-workers acted in unity with what God was doing. They hadn't actually defied Caesar's decree. They actually weren't lawbreakers. This was, they were living in a way that glorified the scriptures. 
They were role models and set an example of what it looks like to obey God in all situations and not place an undue burden on anyone around them. By reminding the church of this, Paul was also instructing the believers of how they should live the implications of the word of God. This is how we're supposed to live. Paul's life illustrated his teaching, and his teaching explained his life. Paul's life backed up and demonstrated and illustrated his teaching. They were one and the same. And his teaching explained his life. We must constantly evaluate our lives and our teaching and our words and how we're relating with others. So how does this play out? What can we learn from how this all shakes out? One of the things I love here is that we, <laughs> we can expect a various degree of responses. You can live as faithfully as possible, total integrity, total sync between your gospel that you preach and the life that you live. You can live faithfully. You can open the scriptures and share the good news with everybody around you. The reality is there's going to be a varied response. Not everybody responds the same way. Some of the Jews joined Paul and Silas. A large number of God-fearing Gentiles, a large number of Gentiles joined the church. And a number of leading women also believed, the scripture says. This should be encouraging, right? The church is growing. Paul's planting another church, this time in a major metropolitan region that's going to spread. It's like right on a major highway. It's a port city. This is an important city for the gospel work. And this is still how it works to this day. God is faithful, and he brings people to the saving knowledge of him. He's still planting churches and starting churches. But like before, the Scripture says, Luke says here, that the Jews became jealous. Something that had happened before, previously in Antioch. Poseidon. The disgruntled Jews, they begin to recruit some thugs from the city. They begin to recruit a mob in order to stimulate this public outrage against Paul and Silas. And they stormed the house of Jason. And they opened, Jason had opened his home. He's probably an early convert. And they storm his house and they don't find Paul and Silas. So they drag Jason, this new believer, into the streets before the crowd. And the, the mob begins to hurl these charges against the Christians, calling Paul and Silas troublemakers, condemning Jason for harboring them, declaring that these guys were acting against Caesar, that's treason. This is, this is grounds for execution in the Roman world. Untrue, of course, but strategic as a way to shut down 
out of jealousy what God was doing. The Jews who were supposed to provoke jealousy out of the Gentiles are now becoming jealous of what God is doing through Paul and Silas and the work that's reaching the Gentiles. The mob believed it. And they're, ac- they're accused of turning the world upside down. But in reality, we know what they're doing is bringing the true world. They're, they're bringing the good news of a different kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world. In their act of turning the world upside down, they're actually turning it right side up. They did, in fact, affirm a different king. That's true. They did, in fact, live from a different kingdom. They were citizens of a different reality, of a heavenly kingdom with Jesus as their king. But Jesus' rule wasn't one that was going to bring revolution and war against Rome, but a different, entirely different way of living. An entirely different culture as, as would subvert the way of life. The city officials were disturbed by these accusations, probably had heard the stories of 100 miles away. They probably also had heard hey, these guys are Roman citizens. So they don't do anything necessarily. They just hurl accusations. And during the night, the brothers send Paul and Silas away. They flee 50 miles to Berea. The team was forced to leave. And they would long to see them again, so much so that Paul would write a letter shortly. One of his earliest letters he's going to write back to this church. The team would make plans to revisit. They would experience demonic opposition that would keep them from going back. They would eventually send Timothy back to encourage them. We know all this from Paul's letters. They continue to pray earnestly for Thessalonica, that God would continue his work. Paul expressed a deep pastoral love and affection for this church that had been planted. As you look at his letter, he writes, we're going to look at a couple things real quick that we can learn from this letter. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul, his preaching was blessed by God. This is, I love this verse. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. Because our gospel came to you not in word, but also, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The gospel that Paul preached came backed with power from God. They received God's word eagerly, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You accepted it not as the word from men, but as the word of God. The believers modeled their life after Paul as a role model. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, sorry, verse 6 says, You became imitators of us in the Lord. 
Not only did they imitate Paul, but they became examples and models. 1 Thessalonians 1.7. You became examples to all the believers in Macedonia. In verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 1.8, they actually became a sending church, began to send missionaries out to do the work that they had seen modeled by Paul and Silas. This letter that Paul writes, these letters that Paul writes are short and powerful. I encourage you to read them just as we've looked at this story, to read these two letters that Paul writes. Lots of vivid language and some of the clearest eschatology you can get in the New Testament. Paul is writing clearly to encourage this young church. Eschatological language of a clash between kingdoms and kings. Jesus is our king. And he is ruling right now with all authority and all power. And one day, this is the hope that we have and we learn from these letters, one day he will return and finish making this upside-down world right again. He will restore all things. He will bring the restoration that has been longed hoped for since that early promise that the snake crusher would come, that he would put everything to right again, as N.T. Wright says. That Eden would be our home again. And he will do it. As Paul would say in Thessalonica, he's going to come as a thief in the night. And this is the encouragement. You are not in the darkness. You are for the day to surprise you like a thief. That phrase gets thrown out, like he's going to come like a thief in the night, but you have to finish that statement. You are not in the darkness. The thief is not going to surprise you. Paul's encouragement there is, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. Paul closes his letter to this church with a prayer. He says this, finally, brothers, pray for us. I'm going to read actually the New King James. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified as it was with you. That the word of the Lord would run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. That's our prayer for us as a community, that the word of the Lord would run swiftly amongst us. And that Jesus and the word would be glorified. All week I've been thinking about this passage out of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2. I think it applies very much here and it's our heart for what we're praying for. It says this, Habakkuk 3 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. I just want to pray that tonight as the worship team can come up. God, we have heard the faithfulness 
of your servant, Jesus. We've heard the stories of your renown. We've heard of your kindness and your goodness. We've heard of your power at work amongst the church. We've heard of your power at work throughout the world. We stand in awe of your fame. We are captivated by your beauty and your glory. We stand in awe, awestruck by your power and your wonder, that there is no one like you. There is no one like you. And God, we say revive them in our day. Do them in our time. In our midst, show yourself as faithful. Show yourself as good and as kind. We've heard these stories as we've looked in Acts, and we ask, do it again, God. That you would raise up a people to live missionally, to bring the good news of a resurrected Messiah. Jesus, we love you. Amen.